Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Woke AF Daily is your much-needed wake-up call in a weary world. Get woke with my bevy of special guests from the worlds of news and politics, arts, entertainment, and spirituality. Where else can you start the conversation on the latest headlines and end on the importance of rest and mindfulness? Where else can you hear a sitting member of Congress one day and a practicing yogi the next? Where else can you take in the world filtered through the powerful voice of a black queer woman? Where else but Woke AF Daily with me, Danielle Moody. I'm a feminist, but I'm a rather bad one. Oh, so I call myself a bad feminist. Or at least I wrote an essay, and then I wrote a book called Bad Feminist, and then in interviews, people started calling me the bad feminist. And so I think you have to be careful when you are trying to switch lanes. Most people who try it aren't careful, and that's where they run into trouble. A lot of times people ask me about voice and how to find it. We tend to already have our voices, and it's really a question of learning how to use our voices. Corporations will never, ever love you, and people need to stop thinking of it in those terms. They will not love you. Uh, I just was one voice of many, and that's all I ever wanted to be. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Hello, everyone. I'm Aisha Sasei, and welcome back to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover the unexpected sparks that ignite people's passion to change the world. On today's episode, we're talking to a literary rock star, writer, editor, professor, and social commentator, Roxane Gay. Roxane's perhaps best known for penning Bad Feminist, a New York Times best-selling collection of essays, as well as her searingly honest memoir, Hunger. With a crackling wit and no shortage of pointed insights, Roxanne has been delighting and dividing her audience in equal measure for many years. This interview was actually one of the first ones we did for The Accidental Activist. And truthfully, it didn't quite go the way I'd hoped. As you shall hear for yourselves, the conversation took something of a left turn pretty early on, and I suddenly found myself going down an unexpected path. Turns out, not only does Roxane Gay not consider herself to be an activist, but she also doesn't welcome the label, and it isn't her intention to activate people with her writing. Quite simply, that's not why she does what she does. So, an interview show about activism with a guest who's in a wholly different place page on the subject. Hmm. Did I mention that this interview wasn't what I'd been expecting? But here's the thing. This conversation going the way it did, when it did, right at the beginning of putting the series together, was exactly what we needed. You're probably a little confused by that last statement, but bear with me. The interview with Roxanne Gay actually helped clarify our intention for the show and brought into focus how important it is for me that this listening experience both inspire and activate you. 
That is why I'm doing this work. So I didn't go on the journey I was expecting with Roxane Gay, but she led me to a great destination. See for yourself. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Roxane Gay, welcome. Thank you for having me. It is wonderful to, to have you here. So it's my understanding that you are living between L.A. and New York these days. And I've got to ask you for your thoughts on L.A., which is where I'm based, a city known for being, um, let's just say, superficial and body obsessed. What do you make of it? You know, I think that people who say that haven't been to L.A. Um, Hollywood, which is a separate city, is superficial and body obsessed. And I, of course, that bleeds out into Los Angeles. But Los Angeles is more than just like Gwyneth Paltrow acolytes. It is an incredibly diverse city. <laughs> and there are all kinds of people who are far from superficial. Listen, I agree. I've lived here for six years now, and it is the eternal battle I, I, I face here when I, I speak of it with people asking me about, like we just uh, intimated, all things trite. And, you know, I have a friend who says LA is as shallow as a bird bath. And, you know, that, that, that's what this place is all about. But I will say this for its selling point. I do feel like athleisure was born in LA. And I, I do have an issue with this, like, industry of people wandering around in workout clothes where I find myself thinking, really? At six o'clock at night, seven o'clock at night, you're still in your workout clothes? Uh, the workout clothes as daily uniform is not one <laughs> that is just not a look that I can get down with, which is not to say I'm, you know, dressed up every day. But, well, pre-COVID anyway, I would, I would put pants with buttons and a zipper on every day. <laughs> <laughs> I feel as if athleisure and wearing your workout clothes out and about is the equivalent of, you know, the way people, certain people take pride in saying, I don't sleep right? They're like, I, I don't see, but except now they get to wear it out. Yeah. You know, I think it's for people who, you know, it's not laziness actually that, that compels people to wear athleisure. It's wanting to make people think that Absolutely. I am so busy and so powerful and I work out so much that I don't need to change out yes. of these clothes. I'm ready for a workout at any time today, no matter where I'm at. <laughs> I could drop down Correct. right now. Right now I could give you twice Absolutely. Right now. And so I just think it's hilarious when I see a woman or a man or someone who's gender nonconforming in athleisure, I know a lot about them and I'm judging. <laughs> I am judging too. And I'm, I'm very happy to have found a kindred soul in the space because I haven't talked about it with, with anyone. But every time I'm moving through LA and I see it, I am judging, <laughs> um, which says a lot about us. Um, because... LA is the city it is. And you made the point about, you know, Hollywood being something separate, but how it does bleed into the general culture in certain spaces of this body scrutinizing and this judgment. I do wonder, though, whether being fat and moving through the world, which you've written a lot about, whether whether you feel scrutinized or hyper-scrutinized in LA. Uh, I don't feel any more scrutinized in Los Angeles than I do anywhere else in this country or the world for that matter. I, I think people everywhere scrutinize fat bodies, especially very fat bodies. And so 
I would never suggest that LA is worse than others. I actually feel more comfortable in LA because quite frankly, everyone is so self-involved that they're not worried about me. (laughs) (laughs) I will say you are absolutely right. You know, I go to one of the, I don't anymore because I I was one of the people who left Equinox in recent years. But um, I will say I go to, I used to go to one in LA where to your point, the level of self-involvement was such that in every other city that I'd gone to a gym in, you had that moment of self-consciousness of, oh, maybe somebody's looking at me. That's not a problem no. in Especially LA at gyms. Equinox. And I too was a member. And at New York, I, you know, you could feel scrutinized, but in, at the LA locations, no. Like they were looking in the mirror <laughs> as they flexed and did that, or they were looking at each other on the cardio machines. They were not worried about me. Damn. The back of your head is ridiculous. They were not worried about me either. Let me tell you that. But you say that LA is no different to other places in the world where fat bodies are scrutinized. I certainly feel that in Africa, it is a different lens applied to the fat body. Or am I wrong? Um, I wouldn't say you're wrong. I've only been to Egypt and Africa. And so... My experience there was that my body was as scrutinized there as anywhere else. Northern yeah. Africa, key difference. It's a, it's a, yeah. and Northern Africa, so what's so adorable about Northern Africans is that they don't think they're African. Oh, don't get me started uh, on that. They that blew my mind. That blew mm. my mind. To this day, I remember we mm-hmm. had one of, we went just before COVID and one of our guides was a man whose skin was actually darker than mine beautiful, whatever. And he was talking to me about Negroid features. And I was just like, you mean like yours? Like we are related, friend. Do you not know that? The level of denial is, it blew my mind. I was not prepared for that. But the body scrutiny I felt there was intense. And it was fine. It wasn't fine, actually. But I, I wasn't going to let them ruin Uh, an otherwise incredible trip. I'm going to have to take you to Sierra Leone. Girl, I'm taking you to Sierra Leone. I would love to go. When you look at it as someone who has, who has your experiences and also as somebody who reads a great deal and thinks about the world a great deal, where does this obsession with, in particular women, I think it's not to say it doesn't exist for men and and gender non-conforming, but, in the mainstream, as popularly discussed, it's about women's bodies. When you've thought about this, what's the root here? Well, I think it's all about misogyny and controlling women. And so when you scrutinize women's bodies and you reinforce that there is a standard to which women must adhere, what you're trying to do is just further control women and make women believe that we have to do these things and that we have to look a certain way in order to be acceptable to society. It's incredibly insidious and frustrating. And um, it's frustrating. Do you remember the first time you felt judged because of your body? Um, no, I don't. But it was probably at some point in high school. Do you remember when you when you started to feel troubled by the outside gaze, if not the first time, but when it had kind of solidified into you feeling uncomfortable? 
I think it mostly was with my family because when I started gaining weight, you know, when I'm looking back now, I'm like, my God, guys, you should have just fucking relaxed and left me the fuck alone because I gained like 15 pounds. Calm down. When they started to become hyper-focused on my weight, it started to make me hyper-self-conscious and it started to make me think, oh my God, there really is something wrong here. And that's like sort of when the pattern of like self-loathing and trying to fix myself and so on, it was an endless cycle for many years, but eventually I grew out of it. I'm lying. I haven't grown out of it. You said something that struck me just then that, you know, you wish your parents had just like, you know, backed up and just like, you know, found something else to focus on. Today, you know, we're all adults now. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I, I think about things that my, my dad passed away when I was younger, so I was raised by my mom. But I think about things that she may have done that you want to call them out on and just say like, you know, not helpful. Did you ever have these conversations or have you had them with them? Not really. I mean, at the, you know, like in the moments <laughs> I've always said like, this isn't helping and they are, they have told, you know, they have towed the party line nonetheless. There's something in black families mm-hmm. where, you know, like nobody has time for that. You know, I, my mother would say things like, I don't have time for like, what, what are we having this conversation for? Like, you know, you trying to hold her accountable. She's not here for it. She's not having any of it. So I'm wondering whether that's part of your family dynamic as well. Well, no, my family dynamic is that my parents are right and it doesn't matter what you think or feel. <laughs> and and I say that with love. <laughs> my parents and I get along very well. But um, that's because I'm an adult now and I can stand up for myself. You know, they Haitian parents really believe that they're the ones who are going to tell you what no one else will. And they are the arbiters of truth. And so at some point, especially when you're young, you start to just believe that they're right about that. And it is only with time and distance that I have been able to somewhat, oh, in therapy, that I've been able to somewhat convince myself that, no, maybe they aren't the only arbiters of truth. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about finding your voice to speak on this issue, which I don't, and and we'll talk about whether or not you set out to speak for others, but certainly to speak for yourself and your experiences of having your body. I mean, let's, let's pin it down to your book, Hunger. Let's use that. You say it's a book you did not want to write, but the moment you knew you did not want to write it, you knew it had to be written. What did you want to achieve with it? I just wanted to write a different kind of narrative about fat bodies. And I think that there is room in the cultural conversation for a range of stories and experiences. And so I wanted to share something that was more like mine, like the time I had written the memoir, you know, someone who had not yet figured out sort of what weight loss could look like and what keeping weight off could look like. And that maybe that wasn't, shouldn't even be the goal. And so like, what was it like to live in a very fat body and not have any of the answers? And you don't see a lot of writing about that. Most writing about bodies and weight is about weight loss and successful weight loss at that, or yo-yo dieting or disordered eating. Were you surprised by the reception the book received, the how warmly and how passionately it was embraced. Yes, I might I mean I think I'm always surprised when people gravitate toward my work and when people embrace my work because I, I think most writers work from a place of profoundly low self-esteem. <laughs> you know, what particularly surprised me was that people in all kinds of bodies 
found something that they could connect to in the book. It was a good reminder that, you know, we're all dealing with things and we're all dealing Mm -hmm. with issues of being in a human body. And I think that it would benefit all of us to remember that more often. And that's something I want to ask you about that specific point you brought up that so many people with different body types found something in the work. This question of who can take a place in a movement or who can, who can speak to an issue, as you know, is very of the moment. And, you know, it's, it's always been pertinent, but it's, you know, it's under scrutiny more so now. And I did wonder about that, what, how you personally feel that there are other people who speak to issues of body positivity who aren't, who don't possess fat bodies, right? Who aren't, who don't have your experiences, but who speak loudly about it. And some have said, you know, other well-known people who do things like, who speak on issues like this, and I don't want to personalize it, so I'll just keep it vague. Um, they say they have no right or they don't have a place or it's not their place to speak to these issues. Do you feel that way? No. I think that anyone can speak to what they want to speak to, but it doesn't mean you're not going to be criticized if you do it badly or if you do it without (laughs) consideration. And so I think you have to be careful when you are trying to switch lanes or to drive in multiple lanes at the same time. You have to be careful. And most people who try it aren't careful, and that's where they run into trouble. And what does carefulness mean? mean I think it means not co-opting an entire experience as yours. I think it means identifying your subject position so people are clear on what you have and have not experienced with regard to whatever it is that you're writing about. So many people just pretend, you know, like, just say it, say who you are and who you aren't. It's fine. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's things like that. And just having a code of ethics about it. Yeah. Did you mean for hunger to become almost like, you know, you made this joke um, in your TED talk about being the bad feminist. And then in interviews, people started calling me the bad feminist. (laughs) Did you intend to become the speaker for fat people or people with fat bodies rather to use the correct language? No, I did not. And I don't think I am. There are all kinds of people who have plenty to say in this space and who do. And uh, I think it's important to recognize that. Um, And they've been doing this kind of work for years, not only with body positivity, but with fat positivity. And so uh, I just was one voice of many, and that's all I ever wanted to be. But you have been elevated above many others, regardless of whether you sought it or well, not. Yeah, but How do you feel about that? I mean, do you consider yourself to be an activist? No, I do not. I'm a writer. Uh, there are plenty of activists in this world, and they put their bodies on the line every day. And I would never try to diminish what they do by calling what I do activism. Um, you have no control over what people will do. And so I just try to always be clear on who and what I am, even when people want to sort of be short-sighted. I just try to be clear. You know, and I wrote this in Bad Feminist, like, don't put me on a pedestal. And people do it anyway. And that's fine, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I always try to, you know, remind people, I'm, I'm human like the rest of you. 
do you see why they might? Because you, in the eyes of many, I mean, in my eyes, actually, I felt that writing Hunger was incredibly brave, even though you have rejected that and said that was not, you know, it wasn't a deliberate act of bravery. You just, it was just something you felt you had to do. But do you see why people do it? They're not, I, you know, I don't think we are doing it just for the sake of it. It's because there is an associated bravery that we identify with the act that is inspiring for others. And that's where the pedestal bit comes in. Um, I, I get it. Absolutely. And I take it seriously. And I think I have an appropriate amount of, I don't know if gratitude is the word, but appreciation and respect for the ways in which people see me. Um, and why I get why some people might feel inspired by some of the things I do. Uh, absolutely. There you have it, the ultimate curveball. Interview number three and a full-throated rejection of the show's premise by my guest. I'm taking you into my head now. In the moment, as Roxanne was explaining her position, I was entirely bewildered. You can probably tell from my pauses during the conversation. Given the fact that so much of her writing is inspiring people and sparking necessary conversations about feminism and body positivity, conversations that have the potential to trigger much-needed shifts in our culture, it never occurred to me that Roxanne isn't writing with the intention to bring about change. So I guess you could call her the real accidental, accidental activist. But Roxanne's rejection of the label activist, as well as her saying she's not intentionally doing her work to make a difference, certainly does raise many questions about labels, the necessity of intention, and I guess how we view the end result of one's actions. It's a lot to unpack, and I'm still working through it. But one thing I can say for certain is that Roxanne's position did set a sort of benchmark for the rest of the series and became a default way of measuring where my other guests sit on the spectrum of changemakers. The Accidental Activist podcast is exclusively sponsored by Mercedes-Benz. Throughout this season, I've talked to a lot of women fighting for change, inspiring others to see a better path forward. So I wanted to tell you about another woman who was driven by a singular desire to challenge societal norms and change the world. Her name is Bertha Benz. And back in 1888, when her husband, Carl Benz, didn't think his motor car invention was ready, Bertha decided to take matters into her own hands. Getting behind the wheel, she embarked on a road trip to introduce the world to the first ever automobile. Conditions weren't great. She even pushed the vehicle herself when it ran out of fuel. But she knew people needed to see this technological advancement to believe it, and she was right. Bertha's vision and courage revolutionized the automotive industry and sparked the beginning of the Mercedes-Benz legacy. You know I wish I could invite Bertha on this show, because I think the way she lived her life was as an activist, whether she knew it or not. So hats off to you, Bertha, and your spirit lives on as Mercedes-Benz continues to be a proud supporter of those who take action and drive change.
Welcome back to part two of my conversation with writer Roxane Gay. Well, with the discussion about her activism, or the lack thereof, reaching a dead end, I decided to pivot the conversation to focus on her life and work. I think it's worth pointing out that though she isn't in the activist camp, she is committed to creating opportunities for women of color in the literary world. She is making space for them, changing things. If you ask me, making that world and our experience of it better. And that effort is both valuable and noteworthy. And the writing you've done specifically around feminism, is the goal there any different from, you know, when you've written about your body? Is it meant to be groundbreaking? Are you, again, trying to lead in that space? I don't know that I'm trying to lead, but if people want to follow, I will not discourage them because I think as long as we're all heading to the same place, uh, that ends up being for the greater good. Hmm. Do you think that, you know, one of the things I've been wondering about is with the lockdown and COVID and everybody being forced to to, to sit still or stiller, I, I feel as if the time that we, we, we were forced to be indoors forced us to sit with ourselves and acknowledge what is and isn't working. And I know that you've done a lot of, a lot of work on yourself, and I wonder whether it was as hard for you. Because for some people, it was the first time they really sat with themselves. Well, I'm a writer, <laughs> and so I've been sitting with myself for a long time. <laughs> uh, and it can be a little uncomfortable. You know, after like three weeks or so, that was the longest I had been in one place since 2014. And so it did force me, like when you're constantly on the road, you can avoid certain things. I actually don't know that I was avoiding anything, but it definitely gave me time to figure out sort of how do I want to live my life if I'm not constantly in an airplane? And did you decide? (laughs) I do know I want to spend more time at home, though. I got married, so... Um, I definitely want to travel. Uh, Congratulations on that. I saw that. And Gloria Steinem, Gloria Steinem officiated? Not yet. No, she's going to do the formal wedding. We uh, eloped. We had a okay. big wedding planned for 10, 10, 20. But there was no way to have a 400-person gathering. So we eloped in June. And that may well be enough. I really did want to have sort of the big fairy tale wedding because I have not yet been married. This is my first wet marriage and my, my last. Oh. Um, yes. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll definitely see. But again, like priorities shift, like after what happened. And of course, my mom is six. Well, yeah, she wouldn't, you couldn't tell, but she's sick. Um, sorry. So, you know, priorities change. And right now, I think we're just focused on spending as much time with my parents as possible and spending as much time together as possible. And for you, as you talk about shifting priorities, do you find that you write a lot about the lack of ease in, in your body? But does that, has that changed now having someone that you're committed to? Have you found more joy, more peace in yourself? Uh, yes and no. I think I've found more peace in myself mostly um, by changing my body. And that kind of goes against a lot of what I believe. But the reality is when you lose a lot of weight, it does become easier to be in the world. And so that has definitely made my life easier. And being loved for who I am, no matter what my size is, has also made things a lot easier. 
for those who are listening who are on this journey towards, you know, in search of peace and finding ease in their bodies, regardless of what shape they are, like we said, everybody's dealing with something. What have been some of your learnings? What are some of the things that you might say to someone who's not to be prescriptive, but just from your journey of 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 how you've gotten to a place of more more ease? It's hard to say because everyone is different, but a lot of what has helped me is therapy and having someone mm-hmm. to help me really um giving me tools to deal with some of my issues and to give me perspective and to be that sounding board and to hold me accountable and to ask the difficult questions that I would not have the energy to face on my own. And of course, that's a privilege. Not everyone has the ability to pay for therapy. And that's criminal. And I think that's also something that we need to think about because mental health is health. And we shouldn't have to beg for mental health when we need it, Mm. uh, for mental health help, I should say. But that's really what has been incredibly useful for me. For in communities of colors, you know, issues of therapy, and, and specifically, I'll speak specifically for like the African community, therapy isn't readily embraced by, by, by many. How do we move past that as communities of color? Not to generalize it, it's embracing more, some spaces more than others, but from your perspective. Yeah, Haitian culture is exactly the same way. And it's hard. Like even now when I mentioned to my mom, like, oh, I have to go, I have therapy she'll make a comment and I can tell she's not super thrilled. And, you know, I just had to tell myself that I deserve better. I have the right to do this. And I, it may make people in my life uncomfortable, but that's because they think I'm talking about them when I'm not. Um, We have to be able to, as black cultures, recognize that there's no shame in seeking help. And it is not a reflection of anything, but that we have the strength and self-possession to do something about our issues. And I just try to remind myself whenever I doubt or I feel not shame, but something, Mm. you know, I just try to remind myself that I have every right to do this. And my life is better when I take care of my mental health than when I don't, which sometimes you need that reminder. I feel like when I used to mention going to therapy to my mom, she'd just talk over it. My mom does a range of things, ranging from, oh, are you going to talk about your mother? Or, well, again? Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, whatever. I just, I just let her do her because she is in her 70s. She's not changing. And that's no. fine. Where is your attention focused right now in terms of, in terms of writing? In terms of writing, you know, for me, I think just what matters is making sure that I am creating opportunities as much as I am putting my own work out into the world, because you can never be the only one. Anytime you're the only one doing something and it stays that way, I mean, you can start as the only one, but you shouldn't finish as the only one or the last one. And so I try to do everything in my power to make sure that I create as many opportunities as possible for Black women in particular, but also I would say women of color more broadly and queer women to have opportunities to write their way into the cultural conversation, whether it's through fiction or nonfiction or film and television and things like that. You're by now very well known and uh, you, you know you have the work that 
that supports that. But how welcoming has the literary establishment been to you from when you started to now? How, how do you describe that journey as, as a Black woman in the U.S. publishing industry? Um, I don't know. I haven't really had a lot of encounters with the publishing well, you know what I mean? Like I have an agent and I love my agent and I have a publisher mm-hmm. and they're great, but I actually until recently lived in the Midwest. And so I, I mm-hmm. don't go to literary parties and move in literary circles. Like I came up the normal way, like by sending emails and hustling, you know, of course you're always going to hear stories about someone who's someone's nephew or whatever, but like, I just never had those connections. And I don't, I always had a day job until very recently I didn't care if they accepted me or not because I had a job and my my light bill was not going to be paid by their acceptance. And I think that was really freeing. And that's why when people ask me for advice, I'm just like, keep your day job as long as you need to, so that you're never beholden to this industry that will never love you. You know, I just was never looking for their acceptance. It would be great, sure. But, you know, I've talked extensively about what my early advances were. You know, Mm -hmm. they were horrible. And they were not at all comparable to what my white counterparts have gotten. What I mean is, I don't care if they accept me or not, as long as they support my work in the way it deserves. And so far, that has absolutely been the case. And I have had really good experiences with publishing. Hmm. You said they'll never love you, though. Is that what you think? Oh, that's what I know. Corporations will never, ever love you. And people need to stop thinking of it in those terms. They will not love you. If you make them money, they will be very fond of you. When you stop making them money, they will not love you anymore. I think a lot of times people are waiting for like some sort of warm embrace from a corporate industry. But like my my nonfiction is through HarperCollins, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch. No, it's never going to love me. But do they support my books? And do I have a great editor and a great publicist? Absolutely. So that's great. And am I treated with respect? Yes, I am, at least now. (laughs) And so I think, you know, I think it just, it's important to have more realistic measures. What's been bringing you joy throughout this time? Because obviously it's not been an easy time for many, but how have you navigated the last year? And and I know you got married, which I hope has brought extraordinary joy. But what else, what what have you been reading and watching that, we can leave people with to to go and check out that has brought joy and, and, and some inspiration? Um, I've been reading all kinds of things because I have a book club now. And so I, I just that. finished Milk, Blood, Heat by Duntil W. Moniz. And I also recently finished my former student's amazing novel of Women in Salt. Her name is Gabriela Garcia. And mm-hmm. uh, another student has an essay collection just out called a History of Scars, and her name is Laura Lee. And I'm reading a memoir by Nicole Perkins right now that's really interesting and is, I think, the November selection for my book club. I forgot to ask, how many books do you read a year? I, I mean, read it between uh, 75 and 100 books a year. Oh, my goodness. It's not that many. Really? You're really going to come at me and say that that's not that many. Well, I mean, there are 365 days in the year. So when you look at it like that. <laughs> uh, but you are doing other things. Will you do something else like Bad Feminist? Do you, do you, can you see that? Another 
collection of essays that again move the needle on on issues and and difficult conversations that need to be had and uh, your observations of where we are as a society. Yes, it's called uh, TV Guide, and it will be out probably in 2023. Is this a sneak preview? Can you tell us a little bit more? TV Guide is a book of essays about film and television. And film and television is always a reflection of our culture and what we value and not what we don't value as well. And so each chapter is going to focus on a network. Interesting. So as you bring up culture and what we value and its reflection, I've got to ask you about the Khloe Kardashian, the image that came out and then it was, it was an unfiltered, untouched, unretouched image of her that she put up and then triggered all this commentary around her body and it triggered a lot from her as well. And she posted back. I, I just wonder what you made of that whole thing of there being such a kind of outpouring of critiquing of this, of this woman because an image came up that showed her one way without the filters and, and, you know, seemingly in the view of some looking perfect. I don't follow the Kardashians that much. And the thing about Chloe is that she was the most beautiful one in her natural state. And the media was so relentlessly cruel to her that she has gone and completely made herself unrecognizable. And if she feels beautiful in this new form, then that's her choice. And congratulations. But I think it's tragic. I think it's tragic that she had to do all that to feel good about herself because so many people in this world were hell-bent on tearing her down. There's plenty to critique the Kardashians on, from their use of diet teas to their co-opting of uh, Black culture and uh, their fetishization of Black men. But this insistence on criticizing Chloe for trying to get rid of an older picture of herself... I mean, she, you guys were relentless, and then she finally made herself into what the world wants to see, and then you want to mm-hmm. shame her for not wanting any other images of herself out there. I just think it's hypocritical and sad. We talked about how misogyny is at the root of this obsession with women and their bodies and the judgment of women and their bodies, predominantly women, in mainstream culture and the conversation. It comes from wanting to control us. How do we shift it? I don't know. I truly don't know. But I think part of it is by embracing people in different kinds of bodies and recognizing that to live in a fat body is not to be a failure, that we do not owe anyone thinness. Or uh, Sonia Renee Taylor writes about this in her book, The Body is Not an Apology. You know, people always say, oh, fatness Mm -hmm. is unhealthy, blah, blah, blah. But we actually don't owe anyone good health. You know, mind your business. And, you know, if more people would mind their business and worry about their own bodies, uh, I think we would be in a better place. Yeah, I mean, to end on the the issue of of self-love, you know, there's that scene in Beloved, in the clearing with Baby Suggs, where she calls everybody to dance in the clearing and to love themselves, to love their their insides and their feet and their arms. And then she asks everybody to cry. And And I find that such such a beautiful passage. And, you know, Toni Morrison is one of these people that, you know, I wish she, she had been my friend. Um, and, you know, I think what I always take away from it is how much we're not encouraged to love ourselves in, in the rawness and in the imperfection. And in the imperfection, which is perfection. 
Uh, we aren't. And I think that we're always told that we can do better and we can be better. And that may well be true, but maybe we're good enough as we are. Well, Roxanne Gay, thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself with us. You're thank welcome. you. I know. Not the conversation you were expecting, right? But that's okay. I think it is often in these moments of difference that you're able to focus and clarify your position on an issue. And for that, I owe Roxanne Gay a debt of gratitude and I'm truly appreciative of her time. She did say one thing in particular that I found striking and want to leave you thinking about. It was in response to my question about who has the right to speak up on certain issues. I'm quoting Roxanne here. She said anyone can speak to what they want to speak to, but it doesn't mean you're not going to be criticized if you do it badly or if you do it without consideration. I agree with her wholeheartedly. If you're moved by an issue that you don't have a direct experience of, but want to take a stand and make a difference, go for it. But remember, you must do the work to understand that issue, make clear for all your connection to it, and always hold on to your self-awareness and humility. Now's the time for everyone to be on the front lines. So come one, come all. Thank you so much for listening. Please take time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasay on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasay. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production in partnership with Arella Productions. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasay. Our producers are Brittany Martinez and Taylor Williamson. Until the next time, take care, everyone, and bye for now. <laughs>